Good morning. It is a joy to be with you this morning, a privilege. I want to say thank you for the opportunity to invite me and my family to come worship with you. Um, quite the honor. As, uh, as David said, um, I, I am a chaplain uh, in the Iowa National Guard. Um, I work full-time up at uh, Camp Dodge, um, which is kind of funny because as we were driving down here, right, you guys have Fort Des Moines which is just across the street, but that's the reserves, guard, reserve. So uh, if, if you never considered it, uh, one is federal, one is state. So I answer to the governor. If I was reservist, then it would be federal. So I could be attached to any unit at any time. So I could be living here, but then the next thing I know, I'm attached to a unit in New Jersey and I'm going overseas. So the reservists are a little bit different as far as that goes. Also, the Guard uh, has been around since 1636, right? Melissa, right? Just want to say that the, the reserves have been around since, what, 1905? So a little over 100 years. But um, no, this morning, uh, I'm with my wonderful wife of almost seven years, Tatcha, and uh, our, her, um, her mother has been with us for the past couple months came up when Gabriel was born, our son, who's just now three months. Um, and then our daughter, she's four, almost five. She went down for children's church. And uh, I, I know she'll have a good time down there. She is very social. She's a social, our social bu uh, butterfly. We love her to pieces. Well, if, uh, if you've watched any TV of late, been out to any store, listen to any radio or surfed on the internet for anything, you've probably noticed, or if you've even just looked at a calendar, that Christmas is just around the corner, right? Christmas is almost here. This is, uh, we've been kind of inundated with this Christmas marketing, at least, uh, in the stores since uh, even before Halloween. <laughs> it was like, you see Halloween uh, stuff over here, and then you see Christmas stuff on, on, on this aisle. But it's been going on for a while, and uh, and there's some traditions that go along with that, right? We we uh, this just this week, Katja sent out a bunch of uh, Christmas cards uh, with the pictures that we took as our family in in uh, in November uh, with the leaves. I, th I think that's becoming a tradition unto itself, right? Take the pictures so that we have the pictures to put on the cards to send the cards to to say Merry Christmas to everybody. Um, especially this time of year, you, uh, it's very common to hear Merry Christmas, at least in churches, right? Or Jesus is the reason for the season. It's very common uh, in the Christian community, at least. But is it just keeping up with tradition that drives us to send the annual Christmas card? Is it just tradition that drives us to give that obligatory gift under the Christmas tree? Is it just tradition that drives us to put up the lights and the tree and the stockings? Is it just tradition to sing the carols that we sang this morning, most, most closely associated with this season? Finally, is it just tradition that draws us to, together this morning to fellowship and to encourage each other, to, to, to learn uh, 
about each other and, and, and what happened in our lives this week? Is it just tradition that does that, or is there something more? Is there something more important to worship that draws us? Is there something more than just mere tradition at play? Does it go beyond the social norms of our past, beyond the, the traditional Judeo-Christian values of our country? Is what brings us here this morning to worship our God something that draws us because of our heart and our desire or because our culture says we should? It's something that we've always done. Well, I appreciate what Dave said, uh, uh, and he, he called everyone to have attention to the bulletin inserts. Now, if you take your inserts, we're just going to go over these really quick, but these are, these are some, uh, some common themes to, to, to consider and think about as we come before and, and read God's word. And, and as we do that, um, before we actually hit the, hit the inserts, I want to ask you to please stand with me as we read God's word this, uh, together this morning. We're going to be in Psalm 50, Psalm 50. And I will be reading from the New King James. Um, that's the uh, translation I have with me this morning. So, um, Psalm 50. The mighty one, God the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous all around him. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the, peop and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together to me those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Let the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt, burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not make take a bull from your house nor goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. This is God's word for his people. Let us pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you that we can come before you this morning, that we can read your word aloud, that we can trust in it with our hearts, that we can worship you in spirit and in truth, that we can be drawn into your presence and give you glory, thanks, and praise. Father, we ask that you would bless this time as we study your word, that you would draw us closer to you, that you would teach us that you would enlighten our hearts and our eyes, that we would love you more and desire you more with pure and true hearts. Father, we ask again for your blessing on this time, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated.
So like I said, the inserts, I believe, will, will greatly help and aid in, in helping to understand the historical setting for our text and how we can engage with it more properly for our lives and understanding. So um, let's start with that first consideration, right? So when we, when we dive into, when we open up the Bible and we start reading and we're reminded of the great saints of old, we're reminded of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We're reminded of Joseph and the patient, patience of Job. We're reminded of David, and he was called the apple of God's eye. We're, we're, we're reminded of Daniel and, and his prayer life. We're reminded of Samuel and how he served as, as priest before the Lord. We're reminded of all these beautiful truths. And we have this mindset because of that, I think, that, hey, you made it into the Bible. You're pretty good. Right? So one thing that we have to remember, though, is that not, not, not all the Israelites in the Old Testament were redeemed. Right? Um, now, those are two examples I gave you. Ahaz and Ammon are prime examples of wicked kings of Judah who openly worshipped idols and sacrificed to demons. I didn't put Manasseh, although I really want to. I'm not a big fan of Manasseh because we know how wicked he was. Kings tells us, right, Second Kings tells us that basically the captivity was going to happen because of how wicked that man was. However, in captivity, or when he, when he Chronicle says, when he was uh, taken, he, he came to his senses and glorified God. Whether that is true repentance or not, I'm not God. So I didn't put Manasseh, but Ahaz and Ammon were definitely uh, wicked kings. Uh, the kings of Israel, the northern tribes, were even worse. I can't think of uh, can't think of one off the top of my head that that didn't bow down and worship idols from the very beginning. As soon as the kingdom was torn, too, they were all about idol worship. So, and and Paul tells us, does he not, in Corinthians, that behind every idol is a demon? So think about that, right? So these people were not all redeemed. That is for sure. Well. Uh, beyond uh, beyond that, um, the point two there. God created both heaven and, and uh, both heaven, the spiritual reality, and earth, the tangible or physical reality. Now, I rub shoulders with soldiers every day. Uh, that's part of my. That's what I do, right? I, but but if not daily, at least on a weekly basis, I I talk to I talk to people who who are very. Uh, I wouldn't say militantly, although that's that's an ironic term to use in this sense. But who who, who aren't uh, who aren't adamantly or, or openly opposed to the gospel, right? But they but they are definitely apathetic to anything that has any type of religious or spiritual idea to it. And the reason for that is because. Their reasoning, their core assumptions that they begin their lives with or they begin their thought process with is if it's tangible, it's acceptable. So I can sense it with my five senses. I can, I can relate to it. I can know that it has some type of carbon or energy. It's, if, if it's in this physical universe, however big that may be, however how many ever billions upon billions of galaxies that may entail or trillions of planets or stars, 
it's still physical. Even though I might not be able to see it or, or engage with it here on earth, it's still physical. It still has a tangible presence. And so therefore, it's real. But outside of that, I'm not sure. And so, but as Christians, as, as people who have, have as, as <laughs> I, I understand, living in 21st century America, we are, are bombarded continuously with the mindset that it is just a physical reality that we have. Okay, I get that. Our culture, our friends, our media, everything around us screams to us, it's just physical, just physical, just physical. It's just this tangible reality. But we know that's not true, right? We know that's not true. And so that's point two to consider here. That spiritual reality, right? God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit, spirit and truth. Uh, and, and we are continuously to offer spiritual sacrifices to our God. We are continuously to have that mindset of it's not just one, it's two. God created both the spirit, the spiritual world, the angelic host, and the physical. It's not true, right? We know that. And so... Um, just because we don't see the angelic host does not diminish their reality. Since God is the creator, he is outside of, uh, he's outside of creation. Here, here's a w good way to look at this. Here's a good way to think about this, right? So if you have all of the universe, all of the tangible universe, everything in a cup, it's, it's, it, I have a cup of coffee, right? And everything in, that, in the, the cup itself is the universe as a whole. Everything in that is everything, all the matter, all the energy, all the carbon, all the people, everything in that is the coffee. But then I am holding the coffee. I'm holding that cup. Am, am, I, it, am I that cup? No. Am I what's in that cup? No. And so that should be how we view this. God is outside of that. He is holding the cup. He is the creator of the cup and the coffee. Right, and so inside of that is both the tangible and the intangible, both the material and the and the and the spiritual. Okay, so we don't go. Uh, <laughs> that is another key point of what makes Christianity unique, a unique uh, uh, belief in and to itself. No other religion in the world believes that that particular point. When we die, we go to be with God, not part of God. Whether you're Hindu or Buddhist, Taoist, Mormon, Muslim, and let's name all the other religions, they believe that you become part with God, part of God. But that's what sets Christianity apart, right? It's not that you become part of him, you're with him. He's separate from us. Okay, so... A couple things to remember there, right? Remember points one and two we see then and point three on your in, inside that there is both a physical Israel and a spiritual Israel. The physical encompassed the whole nation, all men and women born into the tribes who were uh, ceremonially or lawfully joined through free will or conquest. And the law speaks to that in, in Exodus and Leviticus. Spiritual Israel was made up of the redeemed people of the nation of Israel those who converted to the true God with sincere hearts. Okay? So we're just not following a logical train of thought here, right? So I'll explain it this way. 
would you ask an unbeliever to pray for you? No. But they're alive. But they're not really, right? So if we go down to point four, so it is with the church. There's both the physical church and the spiritual church. Now, what do I mean by that? When we turn on the news and we hear and we see some church official over in Europe, or uh, I'm thinking of somebody called the Pope, right? Um, although I don't want to specifically name him as, as unredeemed, but evidence would point to that. Um, he would be part of the physical church. If I ask somebody, what church do you go to? And they say, I go to XYZ, church, First Baptist of XYZ City. Okay. Oh, are you a member there? Well, yes, I am. Well, what have I determined? If they say I'm a member there, they have told me a very important truth. They have told me that they have been baptized. And so it is with any church if they are members whether you're Baptist or out, out or part of a different church, baptism is the universally recognized admission into the church body, no matter what church it is. Now, I would say that those who practice infant baptism, this is why we're Baptists, right? We believe in credo baptism or confessing, confession baptism. But whether you're on this side of the aisle with that or on this side, there's one way into admittance into the physically recognized church. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're part of the spiritual church. You say, well, I'm part of the spiritual church. Well, how do you know that? Through salvation in Christ Jesus alone, correct? Okay. So, we have a physical church and a spiritual church, or a church of the physical and then also of the redeemed. So finally, here we see in the point five, we are of the seed of Abraham. Galatians, Paul is very clear on that. He makes it a very clear point. He says, God did not say seeds, plural, but one seed. Peter makes it clear in 1 Peter, uh, in those verses I have there, 1 Peter 20, uh, 1, 22 through 23, we are the, of the seed of the promise, right, of Christ. Uh, 1 John 3, 9, so even the Apostle John makes that clear, and he says of the seed of the promise, right? So it's all throughout, okay? God says to Abraham in Genesis 12, he gives Abraham a promise, right? He says, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Are all of the nations of the earth blessed? Yes. How? Through Christ Jesus our Lord, Right? <laughs> The seed of Abraham. <laughs> so, um, so we have. So we want to remember that as we dive into the text here this morning, the spiritual realm. We want to remember that we have both the physical, the tangible, and the spiritual. We have both the unredeemed and the redeemed. How are you redeemed? Through the blood of the cross, through faith and salvation in Christ Jesus alone. Right. And so just being a tangible person does not guarantee you a salvation, but being born of the spirit. Point six there then, it's a tangible, or I'm sorry, it's a logic. There's a logical flow here. Tom likes red. Tom is a boy. Therefore, all boys like red. 
that's illogical fallacy, correct? So um, all of physical Israel were uh, part of spiritual Israel. That is logical fallacy. All of the physical church is part of the spiritual church, logical fallacy. All of spiritual Israel is of the same seed as the spiritual church. And, that, and so then we all also reminded, just for clarification, because I didn't want there to be mis any misunderstanding about where I stand, Christian church did begin at Pentecost. Christ says, I will build my church. It enjoys the blessings of the new covenant. So it does something that the law is trying to do. And Christ builds his church through the word and the observance of the ordinances. Okay, now taking all these into considerations, we want to now dive into the text again. So please turn with me back to Psalm 50. I did, I, um, and, and so that might seem a little bit elementary. I appreciate your patience with me, but it's important to consider this, right? Because in Psalm 50, Asaph, the writer of the psalm, who, by the way, is, is appointed by David, um, to be the chief superintendent of the Levites. We see that in First Chronicles. Um, uh, and Asaph writes all throughout the 50s. He writes in the, some writes in the 40s. He writes quite a bit of the Psalm of Ascents, Psalm 120 through 135, those 15 Psalms. Um, and so uh, it's obviously not all the same man, right? But it's predominantly, uh, continuously the, the same superintendent office, right? But but we have here this man who writes this psalm as he's concerned about the worship of Israel, as he's concerned about the worship at the temple. Now, whether this is written during David's lifetime or Solomon's, I'm not going to take a hard stance on that. I will say that the poetry and the, and the, uh, that the, the writing here is definitely uh, of that, the golden age of, of Hebrew poetry, so we can take from the way it's written and how he's referencing that it's probably written during David and or Solomon, very early on in the, in, in the kingdom, in the United Kingdom. Uh, but he switches back and forth, and he switches and he's focused on worship. He's focused on heart, and, and he's focused on beyond the tangible, beyond the physical. And so let's dive into it. Verse 1, the mighty one, God, the Lord. Now, this is interesting because this is the only time, apart from one verse in Joshua, in which God is called this specific title. He, he uses three names for God here. He says the mighty one, that's El, God, Elohim, the Lord, Yahweh. So another way uh, that we could read this, this combination of three names, uh, this could be read the mighty one, the many one, or the three in one. He who is all of these has summoned all of creation, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. He has summoned all of creation, all mankind, to hear his judgment pronounced. So here we have the entire sweeping creation. Does the sun touch all of the earth? Yes, as, it, as, the, as the earth rotates around the sun, right, in the 24-hour period, does, does the whole planet get warmed? Okay, right. So all, all of the creation under the sun, this, he's calling that out, right? And the three-in-one is, is, is summoning it. 
out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. What do we think of when we think of Zion? What comes to mind? Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Um, Psalm 48, 2 references, uh, uh, Lamentations references, uh, the same uh, the same beauty, the, uh, the, the Zion being called the perfection of beauty. So it's referenced in multiple uh, poet and poetic passages. That's what this point that we want to see. However, God will shine forth. The second clause in verse 2 is referenced to a spiritual rather than a physical fact. And we will see that played out more uh, as, we, as we go down further. So we see here we've been uh, connected or engaged with two realities, the physical, all of the earth, all of mankind, and the, and the spiritual. Verse 3, our God, shall come, our God shall come and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous all around him. Um, God has something to say. And when God has something to say, everybody will listen. Everybody does listen. You cannot turn uh, uh, a deaf ear. When God speaks, you hear. Um, that that fire devouring before Him is it's it's mentioned also that same that same verbiage that same picture that same poetic imagery is mentioned uh, in Psalm twenty one nine, and then that tempestuous uh, nature right that that tempest that's all around Him is is reminiscent of other moments of theophanies. Let's think of Exodus when Moses is up on Mount Sinai. What's around the mountain? Thunder and rumblings and a dark cloud, right? Okay, that's a the theophany. First uh, Kings, uh, well, how about Job? Job 38, uh, how did God come and speak to Job? Right, whirlwind, right? So there's a theophany. Uh, Psalm 18, Acts 2, a sound of a mighty and rushing wind. Revelation 4, and so all throughout, every time we see theophanies played out, there is this, idea of tempestuous tempestuous sounds verse 4 he shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people here the psalmist has referenced if you will in verse 1 that physical that spiritual reality in verse 2 and now in verse 4 he combines them both he 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 will call the heavens above the angelic host and the earth below the emphasis here is that it is big Everyone is going to see and hear it. Everyone. All of creation. Not just what you can touch, but what you can't see as well. Gather my saints, verse 5, unto me. So here we have to ask a question. Who does he mean by saints? Does he mean the redeemed, the unredeemed, or both? Well, in taking scripture with scripture, it's a good question to ask, right? Because we always want to be as precise as we can. We always want to ask those questions. Who is, he, who is he talking to? Who is he referencing? And I would say he's referencing everybody. He's referencing all of Israel, the, both the redeemed and unredeemed. And, and why would I say that? The next clause gives us clarity. Those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice, okay? 
under the law, you couldn't be in Israel without sacrifice. You couldn't. Exodus uh, uh, makes that clear. Uh, even if you didn't really believe in your heart, you would have to have uh, that, uh, sacrifice daily, if not weekly or monthly or yearly. And all Israelites needed to do that. So in verse 6, one final part there is, let the heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. The heavenly host, the angelic body, will proclaim it uh, from verse 4 uh, as a righteous judgment. What God is about to tell his people is absolutely true and absolutely righteous. You know, in studying for this, uh, as I was going over this passage, I thought about this guy. I'm been, I've been helping this guy, uh, a soldier. He got into some legal trouble. Um, it happens. It's more common than you think. Uh, but he comes to me and he says, yeah, I got, I, you know, I, I need to work on my temper. I need, I need some anger management. I need to be able to control myself better. Okay. So we're, 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 we're talking through that. We're working through that. And, and uh, he says, uh, and so his lawyer calls me. And so I'm talking to his lawyer, and his lawyer says, yeah, um, uh, yeah, so-and-so is – he, he's done some he's done some things that obviously he's broken the law and now we could take it to trial we could take it to trial but kind of don't want to if we could take care of it out of out of the court that would be great because inside a court you never know where the judge or jury is going to go here in verse six we see that it doesn't matter where God goes with his judgment it's going to be correct going to be a righteous judgment it's going to be a truthful judgment it's going to be a good and exact judgment so in verses 7 through 15 now we have the second half to this this continues the dramatic scene that has been played out before us already and the dramatic scene that we've already seen god has said earth heaven come be joined stand before me as one and watch me judge both the redeemed and unredeemed. And so now here in verses 7 through 15, we have judgment pronounced upon the redeemed. Verse 7, hear, O my people, and I will speak. So now all of Israel has been gathered, and here God is dividing the camp into two. So redeemed first, unredeemed to follow. Righteous will hear their judgment. I will testify against you. Remember that courtroom is not a good place to be, especially when you don't know which way the judge and jury are going to go. But we kind of know where God's going with, with the redeemed. God is saying, verse 8, I am not judging you. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I'm not going to judge you for your sacrifices. I'm not going to judge you because guess what? You have been giving me sacrifices. You have been bringing those offerings before me. You have been bringing the bulls and goats for the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice. You have been offering those not only on the national level, but on the personal level. We see that in verse 9. I will not, uh, in verse 9, uh, nor will I take a bull from your house, from individual houses. So there, it goes from the national down to even the individual level. Uh, it's okay. I, I, I'm not going to rebuke you for 
how many times do you offer me sacrifices? You're doing that a lot. That's not why I'm upset. Verse 10, why? Every beast is already God's. Look at that. Have, have you ever sang that song, He Owns the Cattle on a Thousand Hills? Right? You know that song? Right? Well, here's the verse that gives that, right? <laughs> Psalm 50, verse 10. Here you go. There's the reference. Now, now, does the earth only have, so here's another thing to consider, right? Does the earth only have a thousand hills? There are over a thousand hills in Iowa alone, right? <laughs> With cattle on them. It's hyperbole. He's, he's using hyperbole. Obviously, there's millions of hills with millions of cattle all over. Uh, he's using this hyperbole to make a, make a point. There's a large number. It's the largest number in, in, out there. And, and, and I'm using this as an illustration. It all belongs to God. So God says in verse 10, why? Every beast is already mine. Verse 11, all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field. So every domesticated animal is God's. Every wild animal is God's, every captured and every free. All creation belongs to the Almighty. All creation is his, known by him and owned by him for his good pleasure. It's clear he doesn't need gifts from men. He doesn't need them. He says, it's not for your gifts that I'm rebuking you. That's not why I'm upset. Thank you for the gifts. They're fine, but I already own them. They're already mine. So verse 12 and 13, God continues the same thought, the same idea. Uh, let's read that then together. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine in all, that's, all its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Do you really suppose that me, that this is God speaking, that me, the self-sustaining one, the one that needs nothing, the creator, would really tell you if I was hungry, as if I would be anyway? No, I don't need, I don't need them. I am the self-sustaining one. Why am I upset with you, O redeemed Israel? Why am I not happy with you? Now, some of you were able to meet my daughter before she went downstairs for Children's Church. I deeply love my daughter. She is the one of the best blessings in my life. I, I can't say the best because obviously my wife is the best. But but uh, I, I love I love my daughter very dearly. Okay, I, I think she's the sweetest, uh, prettiest, funnest. That's not even a word, but most fun uh, girl, little girl in the world. Love her to pieces. She likes to do this game where she like she goes she has a pretend kitchen and she so she makes me pretend food. She brings it over to me. She's worked so hard on making this food for me. So then I eat it. It's so yummy, right? But it goes beyond that. She, she doesn't just make me pretend food. She she she'll bring me stuff throughout the house. She'll go and she'll get stuff and then she'll bring it to me and she'll be like, "Hey, I, I got you a present." Nice. Thank you. You got me, you got me, I, I don't know, a, a book. You got me my book. Oh, thank you. And it's very sweet. She's very giving. Very nice. She has a good heart. And it's not the gift that is appreciated. It's 
the heart. Right? I already own the book. It's already my book. I already own the computer. I already own the phone. They're already mine. She doesn't own anything. <laughs> she just gives me, she just picks stuff up and gives it to me. Her heart is there. That's what makes it so beautiful. That's what makes the gift so meaningful. It's her heart. And God then draws our attention in verse 14 to this truth. Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. I don't desire simply your physical sacrifice. I don't desire simply your physical presence. I don't desire simply you coming to worship. That's what God says. Offer to me thanksgiving and praise. Offer to me your heart. Offer to me your humility. That is what I desire. That is what makes me happy. That is what draws you to me. So that, in verse 15, so that in times of trouble, when you do call upon me, I will answer. I will be your God. Oh, redeemed people. Now, switches here in verses 16 through 20, uh, 21, and we are going to go over these like lightning speed. Okay, 16 through 21 has a, a, has a much firmer, a sterner, a worse condemnation. Okay, this is speaking specifically to the ungodly of Israel. This is speaking to the unredeemed of Israel. Those who, who claim the privileges of God's covenanted servants, those who claim to be believers, those who claim to be of God's people, but perform none of the duties. Verse 16, we see that. They claim to be part. Uh, God shifts his focus. But to the wicked, God says, that's pretty clear. What have they, what, what right have you declared my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth? You don't even have, you are so brazen and you are so bold, but you are wicked beyond measure and you should not even think about attempting to come before me. You are not redeemed in your hearts at all. You don't believe it at all. But you, you're coming and you're, and you're worshiping outwardly with, with no intent whatsoever. Verses, uh, verse 17 then through 21, uh, very clear. Seeing you hate instruction, we're reminded of the fool in Proverbs. And cast my words behind you. First Kings talks about the kings of Israel that did that too. Uses that same language. When you see a thief, you've uh, consented with him and have been a partaker with adulterers. Here, God brings out the big guns. Hey, oh Israelites who claim to know me, I'm going to use the law, the, the big law, the Ten Commandments, right? So the, you know, the Ten Commandments are easy to mem remember, right? But he, he's not referencing the moral part of it here in verse uh, one through one through five, right? The moral, God first, no idols, respect God's name, honor God and rest, obey your parents, one through five, right? One, six, don't murder. Well, he's not referencing those. He's referencing don't lie, <laughs> don't steal. Wait, wait, okay, which okay? Number seven is don't don't commit adultery. Number eight. 
don't steal. Number nine, don't lie, right? And so he brings those out. You saw a thief, so you were part, you didn't stop him. So and you were basically one with him. So you stole. You have been a partaker of adulterers, so now you've broken two commandments. You give, in verse 19, you give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. Now you've broken three. You are totally apart from God. You have no desire when it comes down to it to actually be, to be part of his people. You are simply going through the motions because that is what you are culturally supposed to do. That's what you are supposed to do through the avenue of tradition. Through the avenue and the, the reminder of what you've always done. How you've always lived your life. Verse 20, uh, and you sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. So this goes beyond just a neighbor, right? We were reminded of, uh, of, of the, uh, the Good Samaritan when, when, the, when the guy comes to Jesus and says, uh, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Right? We're reminded... And he says, who is my neighbor? Well, we won't go down that road, right? But slandering your brother, slandering your neighbor. But then it goes beyond that. He's, then he gives that second clause again for more clarity to what he's actually saying. Not just the national intent or that of their neighbor, but rather literally a personal brother. It is the sign of the reprobate. It is the sign of the wicked to be without natural affection. Romans 1.31 tells us that. Paul is very clear. All right, you've done these things, verse 21, verse 21. These things you have done, and I have kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. How many times in the Psalms do we read? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Or the wicked, and, and by the way, his fool there, right, is obviously in reference to someone who's wicked. Or the wicked say, God has forgotten. How many times do we read that? It's, it's time after time after time we see that in the Psalms. And so the wicked here are saying, God has forgotten. He, he, he doesn't care. We don't, see any, we don't see any condemnation. We don't see any judgment. Oh, just because you don't see it yet doesn't mean you won't. It's going to happen. Remember, that courtroom, God is the judge and the jury, and he's righteous in his, ju in his judgment. So when he says to the wicked here, in verse, in verse 21, I will rebuke you, and I will set you in order before my eyes. Just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it won't. Finally, he gives one last bit of uh, rebuke to the wicked in verse 22. That's the conclusion. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. The final thoughts for the wicked are being torn asunder like a wild beast. I can't think of a worse fate than that. Think about the Colosseum. The Romans were terrible people. They did terrible things. What what just an absolute frightful way to go. Just a terror. 
And this, the end of the wicked is that, just that, terror and absolute destruction with no one to deliver. And that's horrible. That's a horrible way to go, getting, getting torn to pieces. But that's their end. But then God gives us the redeemed. He switches one last time to the redeemed to give us one final bit of encouragement, one final bit of that, that needed reminder. Verse 23, whoever offers praise, and this goes back to verse 14, whoever offers praise glorifies me, and to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. That is a direct promise to us, his people. That is a direct promise to his redeemed. I will not forget you. Remember verse 14? Give me praise. Give me thanksgiving. Give me a pure heart. Give me humility. Come to me with a true desire. And then 15, and I will remember you when you call upon me. And guess what? It comes back to that in verse 23. I will remember you. I will give you salvation. So, as we wrap up, as we close up today here, we have to ask ourselves, where are we? Where are we standing on this? You know, on the back of, of, of this insert, on the back on the back page here, you actually see the sermon broken down right into those four parts, okay? And then we are reminded, we're reminded of two things. The psalm reminds us, and by the way, this is the Christmas psalm of the day. This is the Christmas reading of the day. So it, it's not just a, a coincidence that we're in Psalm 50. It's, <laughs> it's literally the, the psalm reading for the second day, the second week of Advent which is the reminding the season of the coming king, right? That's literally what Advent means, the coming, the coming of the king. We're in the second week of it. It's to draw us to reflect and ponder the humility and sincerity of worship within our hearts and to prepare for our king's return. I know that so often we can get caught up in doing things because that's the way we've done them. We can get caught up in worshiping on Sunday morning because we always have and because we should. Let's move beyond that and not just stay there in that gear. It's not because we should. It's because we want to. We want to praise God. We want to thank God. We want to lift him up and glorify him with pure and humble hearts in preparation for the coming king. For us. It's also a call to reflection. Have we called upon him as our king? Have we trusted in him as our king? Have we trusted with pure hearts that he will give us salvation? I pray that you have. I pray that we do. And I pray that we lift up our great God and king today. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the, the truth of it, your, 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 your rebuke in it. It's a, uh, it's a reminder to be sincere in our worship, to be humble in our hearts, to not just go through the motions, to prepare our hearts for you, 
our coming king. We pray for your blessing on the rest of this day. Pray that you would be glorified in all that we do and say. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.